This is the Bama Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host Brent Billings. Today we confront the great beast of Babylon as it appears in Revelation and consider which part of the story we should align with the most. Excellent. We're going to... This huge battle that we've been building up to is going to take four chapters of Revelation. So we're just going to go through it. Brent, you're going to you're going to read and I'm going to share some commentary and you're going to read and I'm going to share some commentary and we're just going to see where this takes us. Buckle up. Buckle up. All right. So just as John begins to bring this epic showdown to a close, we find the villain entering right on cue. Revelation 17. Brent, we're almost done. We're working on it. This episode and one more. Ooh. Spoiler alert. Can yep. feel it. You got it. Can feel it coming. It's coming. Yep. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits by many waters. With her, the kings of the earth committed adultery, and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. All right, so Babylon, the image driving the end of this apocalyptic vision from John, is often pictured in the prophets as a prostitute who lures the nations into her adultery. One would think of Isaiah 23, Jeremiah 51, as direct references that would have particular relevance to this conversation. Babylon becomes the apocalyptic image for kingdoms of evil. Just as Babylon terrorized the people of the Old Testament and fell into disrepair, so would every kingdom spoken of in apocalyptic imagery. The fall of Babylon becomes a foreshadowing of what happens to empire in every form. Give us some more, Brent. Then the angel carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. There I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, precious stones, and pearls. She held a golden cup in her hand, filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. The name written on her forehead was a mystery. Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes, and of the abominations of the earth. I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of God's holy people, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. It's hard to miss the parallel that John is drawing between the old stories and prophecies against Babylon and her first century counterpart. Who does this sound an awful lot like? Brent? Babylon's no longer there, but who are we dealing with at this point? Rome. Rome. Her fall is inevitable, and she is far from a metaphor. The people of God have felt her cruelty. She is drunk on the blood of the martyrs. Give us some more, Brent. When I saw her, I was greatly astonished. Then the angel said to me, Why are you astonished? I will explain to you the mystery of the woman and of the beast she rides, which has the seven heads and ten horns. The beast which you saw once was, now is not, and yet will come up out of the abyss and go to its destruction. The inhabitants of the earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the creation of the world will be astonished when they see the beast because it once was, now is not, and yet will come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven hills on which the woman sits. They are also seven kings. Five have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come. But when he does come, he must remain for only a little while. The beast who once was and now is not is an eighth king. He belongs to the seven and is going to his destruction. The seven heads are seven hills on which a woman sits. Interesting. Rome was the city. What, Brent? You went to Rome once. On seven hills. The city built on seven hills. This is one of those uh, paragraphs that people interpret in many different ways. 
We have to try to identify the heads and the horns and make sense out of the passage above using past kingdoms, Roman emperors, and other ideas. Some will use this passage to make the case for an earlier date, or even a later date for that matter, uh, as far as the pinning of Revelation. Some will immediately jump to the future or modern day and start making sense out of all these details. I'm not going to try to, sen- uh, to, to pull all this apart here. I'm still working on some of the details myself. I simply don't have any answers at this point in my study, but I can say with confidence, after what we've looked at to this point in Revelation, that I want to use a consistent hermeneutic, not assume that this is speaking of the future. And yet the one thing that cannot be denied is John's point that this beast represents Satan and his relationship with Rome. Rome was known far and wide, as well as throughout history, as the city on seven hills. By saying that this beast's seven heads are seven hills on which the harlot sits is a clear identification of Rome. So even though we may have some questions about the details, the big picture is easy to work with. Give us some more, Brent. The ten horns you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but who for one hour will receive authority as kings along with the beast. They have one purpose— and will give their power and authority to the beast. They will wage war against the Lamb, but the Lamb will triumph over them because he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and with him will be his called, chosen, and faithful followers. Then the angel said to me, The waters you saw where the prostitute sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. The beast and the ten horns you saw will hate the prostitute. They will bring her to ruin and leave her naked. They will eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to accomplish his purpose by agreeing to hand over to the beast their royal authority until God's words are fulfilled. The woman you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. So however, Satan will ruin this harlot. He will leave her destroyed, for that is what the beast does, even to those who swear their allegiance to it. There are a few things we know for sure, but John presents at least two clear points. First, the lamb will triumph. Though the beast wages war and the battle looks lopsided, there will be no contest, for the Lamb is the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. He wins, John says, period. Second point is that the harlot will be ruined by the beast. Empire will always lead to the same end. Evil cannot sustain itself. It does not belong in God's created order. The great city, i.e. Rome, that rules over the earth, though it looks to be unstoppable, is part of a system that cannot last. It will come tumbling down. So is this like uh, like the harlot being more like Caesar and then the seven being Rome itself or the beast being Rome itself? And so Rome doesn't actually take care of the Caesar. Like yeah. when the system is done with the ruler, it'll just get a new ruler. Yeah, there's and this is some of the details I was mentioning at the beginning of the episode. Like, I haven't parsed out necessarily all the details here. I always get thrown off by the imagery of Ezekiel because the imagery of Ezekiel is always Israel or Judah, should I say more appropriately, being the prostitute, being the harlot with Babylon as empire. And the imagery isn't exactly parallel here, but it's definitely in the minds of the readers. So what you have here is you have, um, you have, We've already seen the dragon, the beast. The dragon it seems to be Satan, if I remember my, my, my own teaching correctly. The beast itself with seven heads and ten horns, that's Rome. Each one of its heads with horns and all of that is an emperor. So Rome itself uh, attacks itself. Rome ends up attacking, devouring its own 
empire. That's how it works, which is very, very true to history. The policies of the different emperors are what eventually led to its downfall. Um, in fact, that, 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 that's actually, if you remember when we talked about Domitian, that's how the stage for this period of history even got set, is because Rome's economy was collapsing. People were looking for folks to blame. Domitian placed the blame square on this Jewish Christian movement, and that was the setting for this. So the details exactly, eh, I'm not sure I'm going to nail that down for sure, but that's what we're playing with there. Yeah, the uh, at, at the very least, the uh, the idea of power, like wanting more power, Absolutely. and then eventually the human leader is going to die, and then right. what happens to that power, and it's never... It never actually sustains itself. Right. Absolutely. It always collapses yep. at some point. Absolutely. So the jury is back. The verdict is in. And while the buzzer hasn't sounded yet, the outcome is clear. Probably mix some metaphors there. Can I, can I put a buzzer sound in when we're Sure. Actually, uh, I'm not going to do that, I don't think. John, maybe, maybe at the end when it's actually all done. Uh, then I'd have to remember to do that. Sounds like a lot of work. <laughs> John invites God's persecuted people to believe it and overcome. So we're getting used to this tool. I hope so. We're almost at the end of this whole thing. But we're getting used to this tool of uh, interpreting the literature of Revelation. So we're going to just keep on moving to the 18th chapter because that buzzer hasn't sounded yet. We aren't done and the battle is still on even though the victory is sure. Go ahead and keep on reading, Brent. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven. He had great authority, and the earth was illuminated by his splendor. With a mighty voice, he shouted, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling for demons and a haunt for every impure spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable animal. For all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her, and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. Now, even though this is straightforward, it certainly doesn't mean it's simple or slight. To quote the footnotes uh, of my Zondervan Archaeological Study Bible, uh, John, quote, wrote a funeral dirge for the mightiest empire in the world. I love that line. That's why I quote it verbatim. I, I just think that's so good. John wrote a funeral dirge for the mightiest empire in the world. That's when he writes it, they are currently the mightiest empire in the world. So just the chutzpah that John has to write this apocalyptic letter, letter and write a funeral dirge for what appears to be something that just is invincible and, and undefeatable. While this doesn't seem so impressive as we read it almost 2,000 years later, please realize the prophetic, subversive, and chutzpah-laden message John is communicating. John is proclaiming the downfall of an empire that, at this point in history, nobody would see coming. And I love that he doesn't let anyone off the hook. All the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her, and the merchants of the earth, like of the earth, everyone, grew rich from her excessive luxuries. Then I heard another voice from heaven say, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues, for her sins are piled up to heaven, and God has remembered her crimes. Give back to her as she has given. Pay her back double for what she has done. Pour her a double portion from her own cup. Give her as much torment and grief as the glory and luxury she gave herself. In her heart she boasts, I sit enthroned as queen. I am not a widow. I will never mourn. Therefore, in one day her plagues will overtake her, death, mourning, and famine. 
She will be consumed by fire, for mighty is the Lord God who judges her. When the kings of the earth who committed adultery with her and shared her luxury see the smoke of her burning, they will weep and mourn over her. Terrified at her torment, they will stand far off and cry, Woe, woe to you, great city, you mighty city of Babylon. In one hour your doom has come. In one hour your doom has come. Didn't take long. This invitation extends itself to all of God's people. If this is how sure the apostle is that empire is going to fall, it would stand to reason that God's people will want to decide which side of the conversation that they want to be on. And this is not the first time that God's people have been faced with such an invitation. Uh, Consider the following words from Isaiah 48, Brent. Leave Babylon, flee from the Babylonians, announce this with shouts of joy and proclaim it. Send it out to the ends of the earth. Say, the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. They did not thirst when he led them through the deserts. He made water flow for them from the rock. He split the rock, and water gushed out. There is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. Uh, They might also think of another passage. How about uh, these words from Jeremiah chapter 50? Flee out of Babylon, leave the land of the Babylonians, and be like the goats that lead the flock. For I will stir up and bring against Babylon an alliance of great nations from the land of the north. They will take up their positions against her. And from the north she will be captured. Their arrows will be like skilled warriors who did not return empty-handed. So Babylonia will be plundered. All who plunder her will have their fill, declares the Lord. There's a a lot of literary scholars that point out the Hebrew here is probably, I don't know if I can say it with finality, but probably very laden with a, a highly sexualized content. When it says come out of her, there's probably a, a more sexual component to what's being said there because she's being pictured all throughout the prophets as a prostitute. And so there's this invitation of God's people, quit engaging with this prostitute, stop what you're doing because destruction lies ahead for her. Is there something about the land of the north that's just that? Is, is that like a poetic idea, the land of the north, or is that literally from the north? It kind of kind of a little bit of both. It's definitely a prophetic uh, image, and it refers back to Babylon. Babylon. In fact, we were just talking about um, was it last episode? We we're talking about Har Megiddon, Har Megiddo, right? So that that Jezreel Valley, where all those valleys took place, that is the bottleneck to the land of Israel in the north. So any of these countries that came, Assyria, Babylon, anybody that comes to attack you, the Hittites, like whatever, it doesn't matter. They're coming they're either coming from the south or the north. It's either Egypt or but but all throughout biblical history, the attack is coming from the north. So from the north, the land from the north is always a land of destruction and judgment. Your enemies are coming from the north. So that's your prophetic image there. So uh, John's going to keep talking to us. He's got uh, some more to say. Go ahead and keep reading. we got a, a good little chunk here. How about you? You read us on through here. You read a little bit, and then I'll talk a little bit. How about that? Is that a deal? Uh, we'll see what happens. <laughs> the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore. Cargoes of gold, silver, precious stones, and pearls. Fine linen, purple, silk, and scarlet cloth. Every sort of citron wood and articles of every kind made of ivory, costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble, cargoes of cinnamon and spice, of incense, myrrh and frankincense, of wine and olive oil, of fine flour and wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and carriages, and human beings sold as slaves. So literally everything, right? Absolutely. Is there anything yeah. anything missing from that list? I, I would not imagine. I can't think of anything missing from that list. That list is uh, meant to be comprehensive. 
They will say the fruit you longed for is gone from you. All your luxury and splendor have vanished, never to be recovered. The merchants who sold these things and gained their wealth from her will stand far off, terrified at her torment. They will weep and mourn and cry out, Woe, woe to you, great city, dressed in fine linen, purple and scarlet, and glittering with gold, precious stones, and pearls. In one hour such great wealth has been brought to ruin. Every sea captain, and all who travel by ship, the sailors, and all who earn their living from the sea, will stand far off. When they see the smoke of her burning, they will exclaim, Was there ever a city like this great city? They will throw dust on their heads, and with weeping and mourning cry out, Woe, woe to you, great city, where all who had ships on the sea became rich through her wealth. In one hour she has been brought to ruin. Rejoice over her, you heavens. Rejoice, you people of God. Rejoice, apostles and prophets, for God has judged her with the judgment she imposed on you. You can see why I'm having you read this whole big block. It really impresses upon you the message that John is just thundering out here about the fall of empire. Then a mighty angel picked up a boulder the size of a large millstone and threw it into the sea and said, With such violence the great city of Babylon will be thrown down, never to be found again. The music of harpists and musicians, pipers and trumpeters will never be heard in you again. No worker of any trade will ever be found in you again. The sound of a millstone will never be heard in you again. The light of a lamp will never shine in you again. The voice of bridegroom and bride will never be heard in you again. Your merchants were the world's important people. By your magic spell, all the nations were led astray. In her was found the blood of prophets and of God's holy people, of all who have been slaughtered on the earth." John utters a prophecy about the downfall of this empire and makes sure to emphasize the economic nature of this calamity. This is easy for us to relate to, as we put so much of our own stock, no pun intended, in the stability of our economy and its ability to provide us with security. Keep in mind that Caesar Augustus had ushered in an unprecedented time of Roman prosperity, 84 years of uninterrupted economic growth. To proclaim the downfall of such a system would be nonsense to the average listener. But this wasn't the first time his readers heard such a claim. Not only does this chapter close with words that are echoed from Jeremiah, but the entire lament is pulled directly from the prophecy of Ezekiel, chapter 27. To place the entire chapter here would be overkill, but I urge you to take the time to pull out your Bible and read it through. You'll see how much time Ezekiel took in proclaiming the economic ramifications of Tyre's arrogance. And this is one of those passages that stings a little to read in our culture, if we're honest. Not only do we cry persecution in places where those true martyrs would balk at our struggle, but I'm not sure we would pick the right side of this imperial showdown. The woman on the beast has been judged and the sentence pronounced. Her downfall is imminent and the funeral dirge has begun. This all sounds well and good when we're talking about metaphors and pictures, but this becomes a little bit more personal when the empire being denounced is the basic description of what most of us would call the pursuit of happiness. It might be, maybe, Brent, that the invitation of Revelation 18 falls to you and I as much today as it ever has. Maybe the idolatry of security and the lust of empire has its talons in us deeper than we'd like to admit. And maybe there is a mark on our forehead that we'd like to head to the restroom and start scrubbing off. Maybe. But we're going to keep moving. We're going to keep reading. We've seen the imminent demise of empire. The Olympic Games has 
they've concluded. The victor is taking the stand. The verdict is in and the gavel has been slammed. The beast has been shown for what it truly is. Give us some more verses, Brent. After this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven, shouting, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And with that, the song of triumph begins for all of God's people. For all who did not desire the ways of the dragon and who did not take the mark of the beast, there is hope. For all who persevered and overcame, there is vindication. Just as we saw time and time again through the letters of the seven churches, God was waiting to crown those who overcome with a crown of righteousness and the opportunity to eat from the tree of life. Go ahead, Brent. And again they shouted, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. The twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who was seated on the throne, and they cried, Amen! Hallelujah! Then a voice came from the throne, saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, both great and small. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah, for the Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen, stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. It kind of sounds like a little parenthetical addition by some later author, don't you think? Helpful note. <laughs> like now, now 20 chapters in, John is like, oh, in case you need any, a little legend for some, uh, Of all the things to call out. Some scribe <laughs> thought like, he was oh, being real clever. One thing that you might not understand. <laughs> oh, oh, poor guy. Uh, John quotes or alludes to all kinds of writings from Israel's past. He starts with Isaiah. Compare, for instance, Isaiah 34, verse 10 to Revelation 19, verse 3. By doing this, John is doing so much more than simply calling for the fiery judgment of God's enemies. John is referencing the ancient imprecatory prayers of God's people. Imprecatory prayers, often seen in the Psalms, that'd be a flashback to session two, We actually talked about them. Their prayers were God's people cry out for justice in the face of injustice. These passages are often incredibly difficult to read, or or maybe not for some of us, and that's a challenge in and of itself. Uh, But as we try to theologically square them with a God of love and forgiveness, they're kind of tricky things to deal with. Imprecatory prayers were actually quite revolutionary for their day. Instead of turning to pagan magic— like the casting of spells or harmful curses. You might think of like Balaam and Balak. That was very prevalent in Canaanite thought and Greco-Roman cultures even later. These prayers would voice one's true feelings while simultaneously turning the outcome and the vengeance over to God. By quoting Isaiah, John is saying the justice or mishpat, as we've studied before, That those long past have cried out for, this mishpat they've cried out for is finally upon us. The world is being made right. And everything that people throughout the ages have endured is finding its culmination in this moment. As we've seen before, this moment is being displayed as a great wedding feast, a central image in the narrative of God. Go ahead, Brent. Then the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. 
At this I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, Don't do that. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers and sisters who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for it is the spirit of prophecy who bears testimony to Jesus. John is so overcome by what happens around him in his vision that he must be stopped from worshiping the wrong individuals. This leads to a statement more profound than we realize when the angel tells him about the spirit of prophecy. For most of first century Judaism, the belief was that the spirit of prophecy had gone missing some time ago. According to the prophet Amos, God told the people of Israel that he would shut up the mouths of the prophets. Joel had also prophesied that those prophecies would one day return when the restoration of all things was finally upon us. Most Jews saw their current situation as being void of the spirit of prophecy. John is insinuating that a new day of restoration, the age to come, or Olam Chava, was upon us. The spirit of prophecy is back. Go ahead, Brent. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, Come, gather together for a great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and the mighty, of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, great and small. And with that, the great hero makes his entrance onto the stage as the closing scenes of the book of Revelation commence. Using imagery from the beginning of the book, itself being pulled from passages in Tanakh, this hero is described as a victorious rider on a white horse. We are told about his name and his character. In similar fashion to the opening of this apocalyptic vision from John, he still has a long sword of judgment coming from his mouth. He comes to consume all of creation and put it to righteous judgment. This isn't so much a judgment of individuals, not that it isn't about individuals, but the picture here is important. It's a judgment of all creation. This isn't just about people standing in some cosmic courtroom and being judged as much as it is about all things being made new. The earth is being made right. Faithfulness and truth are, in fact, having the last word. And this means evil needs to be dealt with once and for all. So we get closer to this climactic conclusion of the vision of Revelation. We feel the heat of the ensuing confrontation. We know the beast and the dragon must ultimately be confronted and dealt with. And for this, we pick up in the last paragraph of that 19th chapter. Quick question. I don't know if you're willing to uh, mix the John and Paul here, but uh, can we say that the sword is... Is just his word. I would certainly make that connection. And, and I don't know if I'd have to lean on Paul to do it, but it's a nice connection. We know that Paul's being, has been written by the time Revelation is penned. So we can be confident about that. But Paul, you know, talking about the armor of God and taking up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. It does say right here that his name is the word of God. And yes. so, we, you know, obviously 
word is a pretty strong connection either way. But yeah, the thrust of this passage is that word for the Jewish. I, I think they connect that to Torah. Now we, as we say, Jesus, like Torah is found in Jesus. Um, Jesus, the incarnate Torah, but Torah is is getting the last word. It's what they always craved. It's what they always longed for. Torah is getting the last word. The word of God is getting the last word. All right. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who had performed the sign on its behalf. With these signs, he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest were killed with the sword coming out of the mouth of the rider on the horse, and all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. Wow. Yeah. Crazy birds. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. We find ourselves at that great and final confrontation, which seems to be over as quickly as it begins. Once God decides to act and deliver creation from the order of death and darkness, it's over. There's no waiting. God's deliverance is here, and the process of renewal commences unhindered. We are told kings of the earth come to fight against the victorious writer who is called faithful and true. All the Caesars and kings, governors and commanders, emperors and pharaohs line up for battle, but they are all too late. The beast is captured, along with the false prophets who perform the signs. More allusions to the Exodus, perhaps? Those magicians? I don't know. And they're thrown into the lake of burning sulfur. What I think most of us miss is that this has all happened before in the book of Daniel. Because of our Christian theology and its relentless focus on the last day of judgment, I think we read these passages and immediately start thinking of people, souls being cast into eternal torment. But what should be clear by now is that we're talking about images of empire and false imperial narrative, uh, this narrative that's holding the world hostage, that John calls uh, us directly to Daniel 7 verse 11. For this image should reinforce that point. Daniel, a book written about the injustice of empire, has already used this apocalyptic image to make the exact same point. John simply reemploys this mechanic to do so a second time. Go ahead, Brent. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations any more until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. John then describes an angel descending from heaven with the keys to Tehom, Hebrew for the abyss. This is a callback to the beginning of the story of Genesis. We are told in the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, that darkness was over to home. And out of that primordial chaos, God spoke order into being. This angel descends with the keys to that primordial chaos where it all began. The dragon, the Satan, the Shatanah in the Hebrew mind, is seized, this accuser, this opposition, and he's thrown into that to home so that the nations might see things as they truly are. Many get hung up on the phrase that Satan must be set free for a short time, but we usually miss that John is continuing to run right down the narrative of Daniel for his apocalyptic purposes. When the text speaks of the abyss being sealed up over him, having just re referenced the book of Daniel directly, we just pointed out, everyone would have realized it's the same phrase used when Daniel is thrown into the lion's den so that, as the book of Daniel puts it, the purpose might not be changed concerning Daniel. 
God is shutting up Satan in the abyss in order to accomplish his purposes. So you're saying Daniel Satan? <laughs> Not quite. <laughs> okay. Not all quite. Right, all right. Interpretation, all right, interpretation, missed the interpretation point. matters. Missed the point there. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. All right. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Ah, oh, yes. The famous millennial reign passage. I hope we notice how obscure this reference is. Like we've we've gone through most all of the book of Revelation and we have not bumped into this idea. We've gone through a lot of the New Testament, Brent. We have not run into this idea of this huge millennia. Uh, and it's a it, it's a pretty small reference here as we pass through to the end of Revelation. We argue about premillennial, postmillennial, or amillennial. We draw entire eschatological theologies about this lone passage. It seems a bit overdone and out of place by now. I hope if I've done my job. At this point in our journey, numbers should make us think more like an Easterner and less like a mathematician. This thousand-year reign is a Jewish equivalent of talking about an era. Or an epoch, an epoch. How do you say that, Brent? I think epoch. Epoch? An epoch of time. I could be entirely wrong. Well, it's fun to say it I don't it that use way. that word a lot. It's fun to say it that way. It makes me think of Ewoks. I don't know why. Oh, no. Epochs. <laughs> well, if, if there's any sign of the end of the earth, it's the Ewoks raining. <laughs> That's right. Well, this this millennial reign about as fictional as an Ewok, in my opinion. This is a story. This is a Jewish way of saying there will be an era where the kingdom of God is seen clearly for what it is. It's apocalyptic message of hope that all of us uh, that that all of this struggle that we go through it's not in vain. And this is reinforced by John's statement above, which happens to be the point of that paragraph, not the millennium, but but another point. This is usually missed as we argue about the millennial reign of Christ. You see, John wants everybody to know that all those who have given their lives not to worship the beast and take his mark, all those who gave their lives to live rightly, they get to reign with Christ. This is all a continual reference to Daniel. Jewish belief in the first century, built upon their understanding of the vision of Daniel, was that those who died unjustly for walking the paths of righteousness would be honored in the resurrection, the resurrection. As the Jews looked forward to the age to come, or Olam Chava, as we've studied before, they pictured a world where everything was made right and justice ultimately prevailed. Jewish apocryphal works spoke about the righteous ones who died for righteousness being raised in the resurrection to reign with God and to help him restore the world. This happens to be where John goes next in that last paragraph we just heard, as he references a first resurrection and a second death, which is often confusing to us, and I've witnessed some incredible theological gymnastics performed in order to make these references make sense in our eschatology. But I digress, Brent. Read us some more revelation. We're on our way out of here. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and to gather them for battle. 
In number, they are like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. John is not naive to the fact that the future lying ahead of us will be hard and filled with toil. He mentions that when Satan is released from his abyss, he will mount one last effort to overthrow the true king. Assembling all the nations of Gog and Magog, we've referenced them already, Brent, in that Sardis podcast that we did. We did the episode we talked about Gugu, that ancient uh, Phrygian god Gugu, which the Hebrews called Gog and then his successor Magog. Gog and Magog. Uh, they're going to assemble for that great and final battle in the Valley of Jezreel, the, the, the Battle of Har Megiddo, Armageddon. All of this will be far too little, far too late for Hashatan, Satan. As the beast, the dragon, and the pitcher of empire is done away with forever. It would be worth reminding ourselves that if we read these things too literally, we completely miss the point that John is making. We might turn his apocalyptic vision of encouragement into a crystal ball of future happenings. This is John's message. It looks like empire is winning, but it will not. You must overcome, because in the end, the dragon and the beast are defeated. Even when he mounts his last gasping attempt, God's kingdom emerges victorious. Or in Jesus' words from the Gospels, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. Do not believe it. Just go about the business of bringing God's kingdom, God's shalom, crashing into earth. To try to figure out how all these images fit into current, current events is a gigantic adventure and missing the inspired point of Revelation. Brent, give us some more. Our last little bit. Bring us home. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. John closes with even more references to which book, Brent? Um, the book he's just been so fascinated with in this last little bit. Daniel. Daniel, absolutely. The idea of the book of life is not a Christian idea. The book of Daniel spoke of the Sefer Chaim long before the New Testament did. In fact, Jews believe the book of life is recited every Yom Kippur as God justifies the righteous each year. Again, John's larger point here is that everything is being made right. Not one name is forgotten, and everything is put in its appropriate place. And in case we're waffling on what the second death and the first resurrection were, John tells us at the closing of chapter 20, the first death is the obvious one that all of us will experience. The second death is the final destruction of evil and the devil once and for all. The second death is the final victory of the order of life. In the same way, the first resurrection is the apocalyptic belief that the righteous will be given their opportunity to reign in the world to come. The second resurrection is the final victory that ushers in such a world for all of eternity. Pictures and images, pictures and images. Are the pictures true? Sure. Do we know how these would look in a literal application? Not at all. 
So what is John's point? Hope. John's point is hope. John's point is that God wins. So speaking of uh, pictures and images. Ah. So the sea and death and Hades as three distinct places where the dead are. Uh, is there like, what? what is that all about? So say those again. The sea, yes, death, yes, and Hades. Hades. So the sea is going to be uh, like says, just watery says, chaos. Uh, the sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave yes. up the dead that were in them. Yeah. So each of these are like yeah. And John has connected death and Hades. I think he's playing off the idea of Sheol in the Hebrew mind. So like the grave and Hades, he's using that Greek concept of the underworld and where. Uh, death reigns and all that kind of stuff. And, and the sea is that, again, to home, that primordial chaos. And so all this place where disorder reigns gives up its dead and, and everything that needs to be put right is put right. Stuff that needs to be destroyed and done away with is done away with. And things that need to be restored are restored. So this is, I mean, obviously there's a lot of, of uh, poetic and apocalyptic ideas going on here. I just didn't know if there was some sort of uh, Jewish understanding of like where the dead were. Because I don't think I'd heard the dead being in the sea before this. Well, the, yeah, the sea would just be that primordial chaos that everything is is evil is being rooted in. Death itself would be rooted in that. For the Jew, I mean, just death and Hades would be closer to that idea. I mean, in the Old Testament, I think we mentioned this back in like session three or wherever, like Sheol is what the Jews, that's the only thing the Jews understand when it comes to, well, where do you go when you die? The grave. What about good people? The grave. What about bad people? The grave. Like everybody that when they die, they go to the grave. And we all, in the Jewish mind, you're waiting for that great, the day, capital T, capital D, the day when judgment will come, resurrection will happen, and everything will be made right. That's the image that John is playing off of here. So ultimately, death has no victory and God wins. Absolutely. All right. Hey, I preached a sermon on this once. Oh, yeah. We're going to link that in the show notes here. It's uh, it, it was kind of a fun sermon. I think I feared for my life at the end of that one. <laughs> I didn't get a whole list of hate mail, but I did get I, I get I get more emails about that sermon than any other sermon I preached uh, at uh, at Real Life while I lived here in Moscow. And um, yeah, I just get a ton of people that love that message. And it's one of my most viewed, most liked, most commented on. Sermons. So it is the fourteenth message in a series in Revelation called Babylon's Demise. There you go, twenty seventeen, and All we'll right. link that in the show notes. Wonderful. There we go. All right, Brent, we got one more episode left, and then a capstone. All right. Well, if you have any questions, go to BayamaDiscipleship dot com. You can get in touch with us there. Thanks for joining us on the Bayamod podcast. We'll talk to you again soon. Mm-hmm.